Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends. Thank you once again for listening. Please lend me your ears as I tell you the true tale of Virginia Patterson Hensley and her rise to the top of the music charts in both pop and country music. Virginia Patterson Hensley was born in Winchester, Virginia on September 8, 1932 in Tehilda, Virginia and Samuel Lawrence Hensley. Miss Hensley was only 16 years old at the time of Virginia's birth. Now, Sam Hensley had been married before, so Virginia had two half-siblings, aged 12 and 15, that lived in a foster home because of their mother's death, which had happened years before. After Virginia, Hilda Hensley would also have Sam Jr., who they called John, and Sylvie May. Besides being called Virginia in her childhood, she was also referred to as Jenny, so that's what we'll call her. She temporarily lived with her mother's family in Gore, Virginia, before relocating many times throughout the state. In her childhood, the family relocated wherever Sam Hensley, who was a blacksmith, could find work, including Elkton, Stanton, Norfolk. He uh, followed the forge, I guess you might say. When the family had little money, Jenny would find work. This included an Elkton poultry factory where her job was plucking and cutting up chickens. Anybody who's worked in this field knows that after doing this, it's just about impossible to ever eat a piece of chicken again. But the family, after moving throughout the state, finally settled back in Winchester on South Kent Street. Jenny would later report that her father sexually abused her. 
When confiding about the abuse to a friend, Jenny told her, don't tell anybody. Take this to your grave. Her mother would later come clean on the details of the abuse. At age 13, Jenny was hospitalized with a throat infection that turned into a rheumatic fever. Speaking of the incident in 1957, she said, I developed a terrible throat infection and my heart even stopped beating at one point. The doctor put me in an oxygen tent. You might say that that launched me as a singer. The fever affected my throat, and when I recovered, I had this booming voice like Kate Smith. Now, Kate Smith was one of her idols. It was during this time that she developed an interesting in singing, and she started performing with her mother in the local Baptist choir. Mother and daughter also performed duets at church social events. She also taught herself how to play the piano. And Jenny's interest <clears throat> excuse me, in performing continued to build. At age 14, she declared to her mother that she was going to audition for a local radio station. Her first radio performances began at WINC in Winchester area. According to WINC's disc jockey, Jolton Jim McCoy, Jenny just showed up in the station's waiting room one day and asked to audition. And Jolton Jim was so impressed by her audition of performance that he said, well, if you've got the nerve to stand before a mic and sing over live air, I, I guess I've got the nerve to let you. While performing on the radio, she also started appearing in talent contests and even created a nightclub act. There was little doubt Jenny was determined to make it in the music field. And of course, nothing can come easy, so it was about this time that Jenny's mother and father had marital conflicts, and by 1947, her father just up and deserted the family. When she entered the ninth grade, Jenny enrolled at John Hanley High School in Winchester, but the family had terrible time making it after her fathers had flown the coop on them. So Jenny dropped out of high school to help support the family. She started working at Gaunt's Drug Store as a clerk and soda jerk. A soda jerk is a person who is usually hired as a, at the teenage who operates the soda fountain in the drug store for the purpose of preparing and serving soda drinks and ice cream sodas. This was made by putting flavored syrup into a specially designed tall glass and adding carbonated water one or two scoops of ice cream and sometimes they'd pour a little malt powder in it too it could be added and good old-fashioned soda was served with a long handle spoon most commonly known as a soda spoon and with drinking straws as well it's hard to describe to those who haven't enjoyed one of these things just how good they were i remember the drugstore in our little town where i grew up having just this type of soda machine I've not tasted anything even close to how good these things were, but the term soda jerk was a pun on soda clerk, the formal job title of the drugstore assistants who operated the soda fountains. It was inspired by the jerking action that the server would make to swing the soda fountain handle back and forth when adding the soda water to the drink. Anyway, at age 15, Jenny wrote a letter to the Grand Ole Opry asking for an audition. She told local photographer Ralph Grubbs about the letter. A friend thinks I'm crazy to send it. What do you think? Grubbs encouraged her to send it. Can you imagine how she felt when several weeks later, lo and behold, she received a letter from the Opry asking for pictures and recordings. At the same time, 
gospel performer Willie Fowler headlined a concert in her hometown, and Jenny convinced concert employees to let her backstage, where she asked Mr. Fowler for an audition. Jenny's singing knocked Mr. Fowler's hat in the creek, as we say in the mountains. He loved her. Then Jenny's family got a call asking her to audition for the Grand Ole Opry. She traveled with her mother and two siblings and a family friend in an eight-hour drive all the way to Nashville. Of course, having limited finances, they drove all night and slept in a Nashville park. The following morning, Jenny auditioned for opera performer Moon Mulligan. The audition was well-received, and she expected to hear from the Opry on the same day, but she never received any news, and the family finally gave up and went back home. By the early 1950s, Jenny continued performing around the local area. In 1952, she asked to audition for country band leader Bill Peer. Following her audition, she began performing regularly as a member of Bill Peer's Melody Boys and Girls. Jenny and Bill's relationship soon turned romantic, continuing an affair for several years. Nonetheless, he remained married to his wife. Peer's group played primarily at the Moose Lodge in Brunswick, Maryland, where Jenny would eventually meet her first husband, Gerald Klein. In August of 1953, Jenny was a contestant in a local country music contest. She won $100 and the opportunity to perform as a regular on Connie B. Gay's Town and Country Time. The show included country stars Jimmy Dean, Roy Clark, George Hamilton IV, and Billy Grammer, and was filmed in Washington, D.C. and Arlington, Virginia. She wasn't officially added to the program's television shows until October 1955. Jenny's television performances received critical acclaim. The Washington Star magazine praised her stage presence, commenting she creates the moods through movement of her hands and body and with a lilt of her voice, reaching way down deep in her soul to bring forth a melody. Most female country music vocalists stand motionless, sing with a monotonous high-pitched nasal twang, but Jenny's come up with a throaty style loaded with motion and emotion. In 1954, Bill Peer created a, and distributed a series of demonstration tapes with Jenny's voice on it. A tape was brought to the attention of Bill McCall, president of Four Star Records. On September 30, 1954, she signed a two-year recording contract with the label alongside Bill Peer and her husband Gerald. The original contract allowed Four Star to receive most of the money for the song she recorded, which was typical of the record deal for newcomers. Therefore, Jenny received little of the royalties from the label, totaling out to about 2.34% on her recording contract. Her first recording session took place in Nashville, Tennessee on January 5, 1955. Songs for the session were handpicked by Bill McCall and Paul Cohen. Four Star leased the recordings to the larger Decca Records, and for those reasons, Owen Bradley was chosen to be the session's producer, a professional relationship that would continue into the 1960s. Her first single release was 1955. It was called a church, a courtroom, then goodbye. Although Jenny promoted it with an appearance on the Grand Ole Opry, the song just didn't take off for her. Jenny recorded a variety of music styles while recording for Four Star. This included genres in gospel, rockabilly, traditional country, and even pop. 
between 1955 and 56, Jenny's four-star singles failed to become hits, but she wasn't ready to quit doing what she loved and continue performing regionally, including in the town and country jamboree that would be all about her husband could take, though, because he thought he'd, she'd already had her shot at the good big time, so that left her marriage on the rocks. And in 1956, she appeared in ABC's Country Music Jubilee. It was at one of her local performances that she met her second husband, Charlie Dick. In 1956, she received a call to perform on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, a national television show she had auditioned for several months earlier. She accepted the offer, using her mother Hilda as her talent scout for the show. Now, according to the show's rules, talent scouts couldn't be family members for these reasons. That's why her mother lied to be able to appear on the show. When Arthur Godfrey asked if Miss Hensley had known Jenny her entire life, she replied, Ah, yes, just about. Uh, Jenny and Miss Hensley flew to LaGuardia Airport in New York City on January 18, 1957. She made her debut appearance on the program on January 21st. The day of the show, she met with the show's producer, Jeanette Davis. Jenny had chosen a poor man's roses or a rich man's gold to perform on the program, but Miss Davis preferred another song, Walking After Midnight, which was one of the songs that Jenny had recorded for Four Star. Jenny initially refused to perform it because she didn't think people liked it and because it just didn't take off in record sales. She ultimately agreed to perform it, though, and Miss Davis also suggested Jenny wear a cocktail dress instead of the cowgirl outfit that her mother had made for her. Now, I have to admit that uh, this was probably for the best because she, she just looked like Annie Oakley wannabe and that other thing, but she preferred and or performed the song and won the program's contest that night. In order to keep up with public demand, Decca Records, who now had the single in their possession, Rush released the song as a single on February the 11th. This time, the song took off and became Jenny's breakthrough hit, picking at number two on the Billboard Hot Country and Western charts. The song also reached number 12 on the Billboard Pop charts, which was something unheard of in those days. You see, Jenny's music wasn't quite country and not quite rock either. To me, it almost sounds like jazz, like with an old Nashville feel in the background. She continued working for Arthur Godfrey over the next several months. She also appeared on the Grand Ole Opry in February in the television program Western Ranch Party in March. Jenny could hardly believe it. After all the years of work, she was finally beginning to see some success. The money she earned from her many engagements totaled out to about $10,000, and Jenny gave all the money to her mother, which she used to pay the mortgages on the Winchester house. In August of 1957, her debut studio album was issued by Decca Records. Jenny's follow-up singles, again, didn't yield much success. This was partially due to the quality of the material chosen for her to record. Jenny was dissatisfied with the limited success following her hit song. She was also dissatisfied with not being able to pick her own songs, which she felt that she had a better feel for. Owen Bradley recounted how she often came to him saying, Hoss, you, can't you do something? I feel like a prisoner. Around the same time, Jenny was fired from her regular slot on Town & Country Jamboree. According to Connie B. Gay, she 
Ran late for shows and showed up with liquor on her breath. Uh, who could blame her by now? On September of 1957, Jenny, after finally divorcing her first husband, Gerald Klein, married Charlie Dick, and she was promptly sent, or he was promptly sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, on a military assignment. Of course, she had to be kicked by life while she was already down, huh? And Jenny also gave birth to her first daughter, Julie. Now, in hopes of restoring her career, she and her family up and moved to Nashville. Jenny's professional decision had more positive results by the early 1960s. After moving to Nashville, she signed a management deal with Randy Hughes. With the help of Mr. Hughes, she began working steadier jobs. She organized 50, or he organized $50 bookings and got her multiple performances on the Grand Ole Opry. Now, $50 bookings back then might not sound like much today, but that was pretty good. In January 1960, Jenny officially became a member of the Grand Ole Opry. When she asked General Manager Ott Devine about a membership, he replied, Girl, if that's all you want, you're on the Opry. So things are starting to look up for our girl. Also, in January 1960, Jenny made her final recording sessions required of her contract with Four Star Records. Later that year, her final singles with the label were released. They were called Love Sick Blues and Crazy Dreams. Leaving Four Star, Jenny officially assigned with Decca Records in late 1960, working exclusively under Owen Bradley's direction. Insisting on receiving an advance, she received $1,000 from Mr. Bradley once she began the label. Those of you who don't know, Owen Bradley is the man who is single-handedly known for creating the Nashville sound, so this contract was nothing to sneeze at. Jenny was now at the cusp of truly making it. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. I'm Larry Bentley. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, at the recording session, she worried about the song's production, particularly the background vocals performed by the Jordanaires. Now, she's not the first artist to complain about the Jordanaires being on the record. Not that they weren't any good, but they were brought in to sing on songs that the artists didn't think they should be on. Now, too much of a good thing can sometimes be something bad, they thought. After arguments between Jenny and Mr. Bradley, they negotiated that she would record I Fall to Pieces, which Bradley favored, and Lovin' in Vain, which Jenny favored. Release as a single on January of 61, I Fall to Pieces attracted little attention at first, but in April, the song debuted at the Hot Country Charts, and, and uh, by August 7th, the song had become her first top country chart song. Additionally, it crossed over to the Billboard Pop Charts, peaking again at number 12. Again, climbing both the country charts and the pop charts, showing that the uniqueness of her sound. 
By this time, Jenny had made enough money to be able to move into a new home, which she rented in Nashville. On June 13, 1961, Jenny brought her mother, sister, and brother to see her new home in Nashville. Then later that day, while driving in with her brother Sam Jr., she was hit head-on by a driver who crossed the center line. On the day of the accident, Jenny and her brother had went shopping to buy material for her mother to make clothing and were driving back home. The impact threw her directly into the car windshield, causing extensive facial injuries. Jenny suffered a broken wrist, dislocated hip, and a large cut across her forehead, barely missing her eyes. Her scalp, starting at the bridge of her nose, had been cut open and peeled back nearly to the top of her head. Her friend Dottie West, <coughs> excuse me, heard about the accident on the radio and rushed to the scene, helping to remove pieces of broken glass from Jenny's hair and her face, which first responders finally showed up. Jenny, who was perfectly conscious, insisted that the people in the other vehicle be treated first. Two of the three passengers riding in the car that struck her died after they arriving at the hospital. When she was brought to the hospital, uh, Jenny wasn't expected to make it either. She went underwent surgery and she survived, according to her husband, Charlie Dick. Upon waking up and seeing him, she said Jesus was here. Charlie, don't worry. He took my hand and told me that now you have other things to do. She spent a month recovering in the hospital. Jenny returned to her career six weeks later, just after her car wreck, and her first public appearance was at the Grand Ole Opry, where she assured fans that she would continue performing. She said to the audience that night, You're wonderful. I'll tell you one thing. The greatest gift, I think, that you folks could have given me was the encouragement that you gave me. Right at the very time I needed it, you were there. You came through with flyingest colors. And I just want to say that you'll never know how happy you made this old country girl. Jenny's next single was the song Crazy, which was written by a young man named Hugh Nelson. He, she listened to Hugh's version and decided she was going to perform it a little bit different. Oh, you know this Hugh Nelson fella today is Willie Nelson. His version included a spoken word section that Jenny didn't like, so she just removed it. She cut additional material on August 17th, and when she got to that song, it became difficult to perform because she was still recovering from the accident. Performing the song's high notes just caused rib pain. Giving her time to rest, Owen Bradley sent her home. Her musicians laid down the track without her. A week later, she returned to the recording studio, and her vocal and recorded it. Uh, her vocal she recorded in a single take. That, too, was something that still just never happens. The song was released in a single in October of 61, debuting in the Billboard Country Charts in November. It would peak at number two there and, as before, number nine on the pop charts. It would also become her biggest pop hit. Just simply unheard of, folks. Just didn't happen back then. The only other artist really to accomplish just type of crossover music feat, well, you know, to this degree anyway, was Dolly Parton who did it with her song, I Will Always Love You. The album featured both major hits from that year and re-recorded versions of Walking After Midnight and A Poor Man's Roses and Rich Man's Gold. In November 1961, she was invited to perform as part of the Grand Ole Opry show at Carnegie Hall in New York City. 
She was joined by Opry Stars, Minnie Pearl, Grandpa Jones, Jim Reeves, Bill Monroe, Marty Robbins, and Farron Young. Jenny could scarcely believe that she was in the company of such greatness. Despite positive reviews, New York Journal-American columnist Dorothy Kilgallen commented, Everybody should get out of town because the hillbillies are coming. The comment upset Jenny and the rest of the bunch there from the Opry, but it didn't affect ticket sales. The Opry performance was sold out by the end of the year. Jenny had won several major industry awards, including favorite female vocals from Billboard magazine and Cashbox magazine, most programmed female artist, and... In 1961, Jenny was back in the studio to record an upcoming album. Among the first songs she recorded was She's Got You, written by Hank Cochran. He pitched the song to Jenny over the phone, insisting to hear it in person. Cochran brought the recording over to her house, along with a bottle of wine. Upon listening to it again, she liked it and wanted to record it. Of course, the bottle of wine was known in the industry as Greasing the Wheel. Amazingly, Owen Bradley liked the song too, and it was officially recorded on December 17, 1961. She's Got You became her third country pop crossover hit by 1962. She's Got You would also <clears throat> excuse me, be her second number one hit in the Billboard country charts. It was also Jenny's first entry into the United Kingdom charts as well, reaching number 43. In 1962, Jenny had three major hits with... When I Get Through With You, So Wrong, and Imagine That. Her career successes helped her become financially stable enough to finally buy her own house. She bought a ranch house included or located in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville. The home was decorated by Jenny herself and included a music room, several bedrooms, and big backyard. According to Dottie West, the house was her mansion. The Sign she'd officially arrived. Jenny called it her dream house and often had friends over to visit. In the summer of 1962, manager Randy Hughes got her a role in a country music vehicle film. It also starred Dottie West, Webb Pierce, Sonny James, and after arriving to film in Deland, Florida, the producer had ran off with the money, according to Dottie West, and the music or the movie was never made. In August, her third studio album, Sentimentally Yours, was released. It featured She's Got You, as well as uh, several country pop char standards, that is. According to biographer Ellis Nassour, her royalties were coming in slim, and she needed some financial security, so Randy Hughes arranged Jenny to work at the Merriment Theater in Las Vegas, Nevada, for 35 days. She would dislike the experience, but during the engagement, she developed a dry throat. She was also homesick and wanted to spend time with her children. By appearing at the engagement, Jenny became the first female artist to headline her own show in Las Vegas. Now, I tell you what, that's saying something. During this period, Jenny started to have premonitions of her own death. Dottie West, June Carter Cash, and Loretta Lynn recalled her telling them that she felt a sense of impending doom and didn't expect to live much longer. That's a hell of a thing experience now that she finally worked so hard to get where she is. In letters, she would also describe the happiness of her new career successes. In January 1963, her next single, Leaving On Your Mind, was released and 
debuted at the Billboard Country Chart soon after. In February, she recorded her next sessions for Decca Records. Jenny arranged for friends Jan Howard and Dottie West to come in and hear the session's playbacks. According to Howard, I was in awe of Jenny. You know, after you're supposed to say something when it's over with, but I was completely speechless. It was the most magnificent recording of Jenny's voice that had ever been made. On March 3, 1963, Jenny performed a benefit at the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas, for the family of disc jockey Cactus Jack Call. He had died in an automobile crash a little over a month earlier. Also performing on that show were George Jones, George Riddle, and the Jones Boys, Billy Walker, Dottie West, Wilma Lee, and Stoney Cooper, and George McCormick, the Clinch Mountain Boys, as well as Cowboy Copas and Hawkshaw Hawkins. That, my friends, must have been one heck of a show if you know any of these greats. Despite having a cold, Jenny gave three performances, one at 2 o'clock, 5.15, and one last one at 8.15 p.m. All the shows were standing room only. For the 2 p.m. show, she wore a sky-blue tulle-laden dress. For the 5.15 show, a red shocker. And for the closing show at 8 p.m., Jenny wore a white chiffon. Her final song was the last one she had recorded the previous month, I'll Sail My Ship Alone. It brought down the house. Jenny had spent the night at the Town Hall Motor Motel and was unable to fly out the next day because the Fairfax Airport was fogged in. Dottie West asked Jenny to ride in the car with her and her husband, Bill, back to Nashville for a 16-hour drive, but Jenny refused, saying, Don't worry about me, hoss. When it's my time to go, it's my time to go. On March 5th, she called her mother from the motel and checked out at 12.30 p.m., going the short distance to the airport and boarding her plane. On board were Jenny, Cowboy Copas, and Hawkshaw Hawkins, and the pilot manager, Randy Hughes. The plane stopped in Missouri to refuel and went on landing at Dyersburg Municipal Airport in Dyersburg, Tennessee, about 5 p.m. Hawkshaw Hawkins had accepted Billy Walker's place after Walker had to leave on a commercial flight to take care of a stricken family member. The Dyersburg, Tennessee airfield manager suggested that they stay the night because of high winds and inclement weather, offering free rooms and meals to them. But Mr. Hughes said, I've already come this far. We'll be there before you know it. The plane took off at 6.07 p.m. The plane flew 10 miles and disappeared in heavy weather in the evening of March 5, 1963. Endless calls tied up the local telephone exchanges to such an extent that emergency calls had trouble getting through. The lights at the destination, Cornelia Fort Airport, were kept on throughout the night as reports of the missing plane were broadcast on radio and TV. Early in the morning, Roger Miller had a friend, and a friend, went searching for the plane. As fast as I could, I ran through the woods, screaming their names, through the brush and the trees. I came up over this little rise, and oh my God, there they were. It was ghastly. The plane had crashed nose down. Forensic examination concluded that everyone aboard had been killed instantly. Until the wreckage was discovered, the following dawn, and reported on the radio, friends and family had not given up hope on any of the people there. Shortly after the bodies were removed, looters scavenged the area, some of 
The items which were recovered were eventually donated to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Among them were Jenny's wristwatch, stopped at 6.20 p.m., a cigarette lighter, a study belt, and three pairs of gold lamache slippers. Jenny's fee and cash from the last performance was never found, but her, per her wishes, her body was brought home to the Appalachian Mountains for her memorial service, which thousands of people attended. People jammed against the small tent over her gold casket and the grave and take off. They reached and took some flowers so they could keep as keepsakes. She was buried at Shenandoah Memorial Park in her hometown in Winchester, Virginia. Her grave is marked with a bronze plaque which reads, Virginia H. Dick. And I know you're wondering why you never heard of this Virginia Hensley or Virginia Dick. Well, I can assure you that I am not making this up. It's all true. The next line in her marker includes her stage name. She had changed her first name from Virginia to, and took the first part of her stage name from her middle name, Patterson. She kept her first husband's na last name. The stage name on her marker is Patsy Cline. The bronze plaque includes the note, Death cannot kill what never dies, love. The memorial also marks the exact place off Mount Carmel Road in Camden, Tennessee, where a plane crashed at the small, still remote forest. Patsy Cline's music continued making the charts into the 1980s. Her version of Always made the Billboard Country Chart in 1980. An album of the same was also released in 1980 that peaked within the top 30 on Billboard Top Country albums. Two overdubbed duets with Patsy and Jim Reeves became major hits during this time as well. Following the release of the Loretta Lynn biopic Coal Miner's Daughter in 1980, there was renewed interest in Patsy's career, so MCA Records reissued much of her studio compilation in a big release. Her 67, 1967 Greatest Hits album, for example, was repackaged in 1988 and labeled 12 Greatest Hits. The record managed to reach number 27 in the top country albums list in 1990. The soundtrack for Patsy Cline's own biopic was released concurrently with the 1985 movie. The soundtrack would peak at number 6 on the Billboard Country Music charts upon its release. The 1985 feature film about Patsy's life was released entitled Sweet Dreams. The film starred Jessica Lange as Patsy Cline and Ed Harris as her husband Charlie Dick. Originally, Meryl Streep auditioned for Patsy's role, but ultimately lost it to Miss Lang. The film was produced by Bernard Schwartz, who also produced Coal Miner's Daughter. Original ideas called for the scenes between Patsy and Loretta Lynn. However, they were ultimately removed from the final script. As with most of the Hollywood movies, the film has been criticized for its lack of accuracy to Patsy's real life. Before doing this recording, I sat down and listened to many of Patsy's records. If you do the same, you'll soon realize, as I did, that there are undertones in her voice that are barely audible to the microphone used in those days. I often wonder what her voice actually truly sounded like and what today's technology could have done to better bring that to life. There are those voices that sing and there are those voices that can raise the chill bumps on your arm. Patsy was one that raised the chill bumps. Everybody who was present during her last recording sessions were in total awe of her voice and how she was 
always emotionally tied to her songs to the point of actually shedding tears, especially during the recording of Faded Love. If you listen to that recording, you can hear her breath breaking as she prepares to sing the final word. That's simply bone chilling. Patsy was eons ahead of her time and did songs in a never-before-heard style that crossed boundaries. She left her mark on music that will live on forever. And that's not too bad for a little girl from the Appalachian Mountains. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe. Please go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend and give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to join. Uh, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. Or you can go to the Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I'll see you then. Goodbye.